Barbara comes to the front. Dave turns on the... Well, he pretends to. He seemed to have lost power. You are here. Welcome everybody who is here with us in the church studio and those of you who join us at home. And on the archives, we're in Revelation chapter 11. This is part six of chapter 11. Let's begin with a word of prayer. We'll sing the word of God set to music, or at least look at the words and think about singing. And uh, when we come back, we'll get into our verse by verse after we sit for a few moments in silence. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we pause. We thank you. We love you and need you. Whatever we are, uh, we gather together as people who do recognize that you are there and we seek you through relationship uh, with your son and uh, pray that we will have your spirit to be with us as we look at more of Revelation. We recapitulate a bit today, Lord, and uh, like the book of Revelation does itself. And we, we're going over some things so we can remember where we are and how it's going. So refresh our minds and uh, teach us what you want us to know and forgive the stupid, errant things that I may say and uh, bless our staff and the cage ladies and putting this thing together. And we love you and seek you. In Jesus' name, amen. For if you live according to the
We got it. Patrick. All right. Uh, we have been in uh, for five weeks talking about the two witnesses. And because we've been there for a while, I want to recapitulate uh, some things about the book of Revelation. We pretty much have exhausted the possibilities of the two witnesses. 
And we left off at verse 13, which says in relation to them being caught up or called up, it says, and the same hour there was a great earthquake and a tenth part of the city fell. And in the earthquake were slain of men 7,000 and the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to God of heaven. We talked about that a bit last week, but the closest thing we can, the closest we can get to fulfillment of slain men being 7,000 in history, looking back at history, is uh, from Josephus telling us that when the temple fell, 10,000 were killed. Now, two things we can say. So we have a problem. Revelation says there's 7,000, and Josephus said 10,000. So what do we do with that? Was it not fulfilled? Or are we still waiting for it to be fulfilled in the future, the way futurists would say? But uh, two things about the 10,000 deaths mentioned by Josephus. First of all, he could have rounded up 7,000 to 10. He could have said, yeah, 10,000 were killed. That's where we get 10. When if they did an actual count, it would, could have been 7,000. Or we know the number seven is a number of fulfillment in scripture. So when it says in Revelation chapter uh, 13, 7,000, that could be saying, and all that were killed were killed. Meaning this is the complete number that were killed. It was 7,229 or it was 8,100, whatever. Seven represents the total fulfillment. So we can look at it either way and have some liberty in doing that. We don't necessarily know what the right answer is, but that is how we would look at the 7,000 there uh, that were slain of men. Uh, this brings us to pretty much the end of the discussion of the two witnesses. And as I've said, we've been talking about them five weeks and exhausted that. Let's begin reading at verse 14. And this is gonna cause us to have to recapitulate or just review, better word for it. The second woe is past. And behold, the third woe cometh quickly. The seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So let's do a quick kind of review, a double review of the woes, all right? Woe, we know, uh, means grief or anguish or sorrow. There have been three woes in Revelation that we've been talking about, and they are the final judgment of God upon a people, and their purpose is to get people to repent and change their mind before the final consummation of that age. If the woes are in the future, they're gonna happen in 2018 or something, the woes will be causing the nations to repent before he comes with judge, final judgment and a separation of the sheep and goats. So futurists or preterists, whichever way we're looking at it and generally speaking, they're to spur people to repentance. And we read that this is the purpose of the three woes in Revelation chapter nine, verse 20, which we've already covered. God's judgments during this tribulation period, again, you guys know this, are pictured as seven, it start off as seven seals. So just imagine, not the animal, but the seal on a letter, like a wax stamp. There's seven of them, right? 
So we have the seven seals, and in the seventh seal, from there, we have uh, the seven trumpets are described. So seven seals first, seventh seal describes the seven trumpets. And that is the angel blowing his trumpet in heaven. We are at the seventh trumpet here in verse 14. The second woe is passed, and behold, the third woe has come quickly. And the seventh angel sounded. That means the seventh trumpet now. Was, six trumpets have played. The seventh is sounding, right? And when the seventh trumpets sound, the fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpet are the three woes. So there's that overlapping, and now, so the trumpets are five, six, and seven are the woe, 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 with the third and final woe being the final trumpet of the seven. The first woe is revealed after the fifth trumpet judgment. Recall that that woe was talking about the locust men, and we talked all about that, and we said we probably, in all probability, we're talking about the Roman army coming in, stinging like scorpions, Revelation 9.3, permitted to harm only the people who did not have the seal of God in their forehead. We talked all about that, Revelation 9.4. Those bearing God's seal in their forehead, and I suggested that that meant they had the will of God, the mind of God, the word of God on their minds. That's the seal of him in their forehead. It's not an actual seal. It's that they have him sealed. He has sealed them to him in their minds. We read the word to renew our minds. So in their minds, they've been sealed to him that there are 144,000 of them or Ephesians gives us some idea that it could be all believers at that time. And these demonic locusts are allowed to torment unbelievers for five months. We studied that with painful stings. And although victims are going to long for death, um, they will not die. We talked about how Jerusalem, when it was attacked, was for a five-month period of time. So this coincides with the Roman armies coming in and they're hurting them and they want to die, but they don't die. And for five months, they're under this siege. The second woe, which is the sixth trumpet, keep it straight here, uh, this woe begins when a voice commands Release the four angels that are bound, that have bound the great river Euphrates, according to Revelation 9.14. And we talked all about that, and the angels and their armies numbering, we said 200 million is what scripture says, and we know that 200 million is an impossible number when it comes to armies, especially in that region. Uh, and so we had to review what other sources said about the number 200 million soldiers, armies, and, um, and we've covered that information. After the second woe passes, we get into the two witnesses, which occur before the third woe. That's why that scripture says, now the second woe is passed. So now we're entering into the seventh trump, which is the third woe. Woe, woe, and then finally the big torment or woe. And uh, this is a clear change of what we've been studying. So the kingdom of the world, it says here in this passage, has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. That is interesting verbiage. Uh, in other words, we are now entering into the final stage of judgment. 
of the end where righteousness is going to be restored to the earth. The kingdom of God is going to reign over all kingdoms or the kingdom of the earth. The third woe is revealed after the seventh trumpet judgment. And this woe is on parallel with what Joel chapter two describes and signals the consummation of God's plan. God has had a plan for the human race since before the foundation of the world. And this seventh trumpet, this third woe, is the final outreach of trouble upon human beings before his consummate uh, plan is unfolded. The third woe marks the finishing of God's judgment upon the land. Uh, it occupies the book of Revelation where we're at now all the way up through chapter 19, through chapter 19, when Christ's kingdom is then established on the earth. You're gonna have to ask yourself, has it happened? Is it going to happen? That's the question. And you're gonna ask yourself that question as we continue on and talk here. It's really important for you, if you're gonna understand Revelation and for me to understand it, to ask ourselves these questions because they'll help you see whether it's um, uh, illogical to believe it's going to happen or if it's illogical to believe it has happened. That's why we have to ask ourselves these, these questions. So incorporated with this third and final woe, we have, so we have seven seals, seventh seal, seven trumpets, seven trumpets, final trumpet, and guess what it leads us to? The seven bowls, or the seven vials. That is like a bowl that it holds a horrible punishment that's gonna be poured out upon the earth. So seven overlap to seven overlap, and now we're into the final horrid final thing that God is going to pour out. These are the greatest horrors that the human race will ever see. Jesus said of them, now this is Jesus talking about them in Matthew 24, 22, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive, okay? So we're entering into a period of time that either happened in seven, before 70 AD or will happen where it's gonna be so bad if God doesn't cut it short, it's gonna be a complete uh, wipeout of everybody. So again, from verse 14 of chapter 11 to the end of chapter 19 is going to be the content of this third woe, and uh, which are the seven vile, V-I-A-L, not V-I-L-E, vile or bowl pour outs upon uh, the human race. Seven seals are, seals are covered in Revelation 6 and 8. The seven trumpets in Revelation 8, 9, and 11. And the seven bowls are covered in Revelation 16. All right? And they are a successive series of judgments upon man. That get progressively worse, and I know I've said that. Uh, they're connected one to another. And I don't think I'm going to cover this part. Just one second. Give me a second. I'm gonna cut out a few pages here just because it's more than redundant. Okay, we understand that. All right, let's get to our verse by verse then. Where John says at verse 14, the second woe is past and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. In the Greek, 
If you believe the first woe has happened and you can prove it historically, and you believe the second woe has happened and can prove it historically through Josephus or Tacitus or any other historian, then the third woe, whether you can make it make sense or not, has to have happened, okay? Because the language does not allow for the first woe to occur, and the first woe we were able to show clearly through history it happened. The second woe, uh, if you can prove that happened, right after it uh, cometh quickly uh, uh, tactus in the, like uh, tachometer in the Greek, it means it's happening really quickly. So if the first and second happened, the third had to have happened then. You can't insert a gap theory there where we've had the first and second woe, but we're waiting for the third one to happen still. That does not work with the Greek. It either has happened or we're waiting for the first and second to happen because then immediately comes the third. Uh, verse 15. And the seventh angel sounded, this is a trumpet, the seventh trumpet, and there were great voices in heaven. What were they saying? The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Don't let the placement of this passage confuse you. When we read it here in chapter 11, we've got another 11 chapters to go for the book of Revelation, it seems like, okay, we're done. John is hearing the, the multitude in heaven, great voices saying the kingdoms of the world are become as the kingdom of our Lord and of Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Like, okay, that's done, it's it. We don't actually get to see that being done in it until the end of the book of Revelation. So what we have here is just that recapitulation that Hebrew writers will do. They do, it's not a linear story. It's hodgepodge of ideas and thoughts that are all over the place, and this is one of them. So don't let it confuse you. We are only halfway through Revelation, and at least in terms of chapters, and yet this verse seems to imply that the kingdom of Christ has overcome all the kingdoms of the world, and it's done, and so the book should end. The Revelation should end. Uh, there's too much left to occur in John's visions, et cetera, and through the vile judgments for us to be able to say that. So this is just something that John is hearing that will have application in the future. And we might just be able to see this verse as John being told, the beginning of Christ's reign has started. And he, what has happened is enabled him to overcome all the kingdoms of the world. They have become his. And what does this victory look like? How is this victory described? Well, let's read verse 15. Again, and the angel sounded and there were great voices in heaven. And what were those voices saying? The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That's a confusing uh, phrase. Who are the kingdoms First of all, what is the kingdom of our Lord and who is his Christ? And then who is the he that shall reign forever and ever, his Christ or the kingdom of our Lord? So we have to talk about that as we move forward. This passage, though not in chronological order here, about the kingdom of Christ or the kingdom of our Lord is what the Jews what Hebrew writers, what Christ was teaching, what his apostles were learning about, 
the kingdom of God, in this passage, the hosts of heaven are saying, it has come. This is what we are all wanting to know about, the kingdom. Where is it? What does it look like? Are we part of it now? Is it coming later? Is it spiritual? Is it material? Will it literally land here on earth and exist the way kingdom now uh, Christians believe? That we are going to be part of this kingdom? Or are we part of a group that is uh, the gospel of Judith, which is not included in scripture, talks about how this kingdom grows slowly, 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 until at the end it encompasses the whole world in peace? Uh, is it a spiritual kingdom that dwells in the hearts of believers and it has nothing to do with the material? All we know is scripture has been talking about this kingdom coming forever. Let me give you some passages. Listen to what they say. Daniel 2, 44, 45. Listen to what Daniel said way back in the Old Testament. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom. So put your mind in thinking about this kingdom, which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold. This is the, from talking about the vision that Daniel had. The great God has made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. And the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof is sure. So we have all the way back in Daniel talking about this kingdom that's going to roll forth. It will never end. It isn't going to vanish, and it's going to consume any kingdom that gets in its way. Then in chapter 5 of Daniel, excuse me, five chapters later in chapter 7, verse 14, Daniel writes, And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is everlasting dominion and shall not pass away, and his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. So I said this morning in milk, there's not a passage in the entire Bible that says this world will be destroyed, not one. People say, oh, they're all over the place, the earth is gonna, it's not. If you look at the Greek, it's all, never cosmos will be destroyed. It's always areas or generations or administrations. But the cosmos, actually, the scripture says, will live be forever. Forever. This is a really hard thing for people to understand as Christians. We're waiting for when this earth is actually going to be blown apart and end. But scripture does not teach that. Test me. Go and do a search and see where does it say this world, remember the key is world or earth is going to end, the entire cosmos, and it doesn't. But it does say the opposite. So if this world never ends, then the kingdom that is established on this world will never end either. And that's what these passages are saying. The kingdom doesn't end once it's established. Four verses later, Daniel repeats aspects of the kingdom and he says, but the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. So if the kingdom's on this earth, it's gonna be possessed forever and ever and there'll be no end to it. 
Nine verses later in the same chapter at verse 27 of Daniel 7, it says, and the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Again, we are talking about an everlasting kingdom. The question, ask yourself to keep your mind going, is it here? What is it? Where's it going to be? When's it coming or, is it already been, or has it already been established? So then we move into Revelation and to passages we've already covered. Like Revelation 12, 10, John says, and I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of Christ for the accuser of our brethren is cast down, that's Satan, that's part of the kingdom, Satan is cast down, which accused them before God day and night. So if the kingdom is here today, then Satan has been cast down. If the kingdom's not here today, we're waiting for the time when Satan will be cast down. You have to decide. To say Satan has already been cast down is really hard because the evil we see all around us. But that's something you have to ask yourself. Then in Revelation 16, 17, which we haven't covered yet, it says, and the seventh angel poured out his vial, so here's the seventh vial being described, into the air, and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, it is done, okay? Has it happened, has it not? And then out to Revelation 19:6, and I heard as it were the voice of great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of many thundering, saying, hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth, okay? So out in Revelation 19, which we will get to, it says here in that passage, hey, hallelujah, the Lord reigns, he reigns. The book of Revelation is describing the time and place when the Lord will reign over his kingdom, which has to be established, and once it's established, it will never go away, it will always be, it will be uh, operated by the saints, and it will be reigned over by the Lord God. One where Jesus has had the victory over all things, where God is omnipotent, where the accuser has been cast down, and where, uh, who used to accuse the brethren day and night. Most, almost all of Christianity today, not knowing any better, believe this kingdom is still to come. And there's good reason to see it that way. I get it. Um, this is, though, in part due to the prominent eschatology, which is futurism, which became popular in the early 19th century, 18, um, 1800s, early 1810, 18, and promoted by Darby and Schofield. It's a theory of dispensationalism, popular then, and it is that we are in this period of time and there's a gap between all this stuff, et cetera, et cetera. So because of this prominent eschatology and in part due to the false belief that this kingdom is a material kingdom, uh, we are uh, waiting for this material kingdom to be headquartered here on earth. And I used to hear it's gonna be in Jerusalem and Jesus will sit on his throne in Jerusalem 
and he will reign over the earth for a thousand years from that throne. And that will be the establishment of his material earthly headquarters. I've heard all of that stuff and read about it in the, um, the little cartoon magazines that are in doctor's offices. Sometimes you see uh, eschatology explained in those. Listen closely, folks. Listen closely. You're going to have to put up with me for five minutes, ten minutes. We're based out of Salt Lake City, Utah. If we can get the, the Christian churches of this state to understand this, we will have a major victory over the prominent religion in this state. The importance of proper eschatology is essential in overcoming Mormonism. Um, and proving without question that Mormonism is a worldly kingdom. Hallelujah. And that, he's obviously not Mormon. Uh, and that, let me explain it to you, all right? Mormonism, what's the, Mormonism is, is the nickname. The name of the church is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That's, that Latter-day means... They are believing we are in the latter end days and they are the saints that are going to usher in the new material earthly kingdom upon which Christ will reign over and the high priests and, and Melchizedek priesthood of the Mormon church will officiate in its affairs around the world. And that is why they have stake centers and why they have temples in prominent countries because they believe they are establishing this material kingdom here in preparation for, in these latter days, Christ to return to the earth, right? Now, they don't focus on eschatology much anymore. Why? When they started, founder Joseph Smith, their magazine, do you remember the name of their magazines? The Millennial Star, Millennial, the Times and Seasons. That's a direct quote from Watch the Times and Seasons. It's very, very um, uh, eschatologically driven when they founded. We are going to bring the material kingdom of God upon the earth. And that's why Joseph Smith founder said, if we're going to talk about his coming, I would give it this amount of time. Probably it'll wrap the whole thing up in about, and it was wrong when he said it. It'll wrap up soon because that was their focus, you see. Jesus' second coming, and they were a group of people watching for it. Um, when the expected second coming period didn't happen, Brigham Young started seeing things, and so the, they started becoming less of a people who were looking for the day to a people to prepare the earth. There was a shift there with them and they began to do kingdom building rather than preparing for, right? And recent, well, the past 20, 30 years, their prophet and apostles and leaders have said, oh, we have building plans going out for the next uh, 100 years. People have asked them, you know, in Q&As, well, when will the second coming be? And their apostles and leaders say, well, our plans go out for another 100 years. In other words, don't focus on that. Focus on kingdom building in preparation for this coming event, right? So in preparing the earthly kingdom, they have missional efforts worldwide, and they're planning these wards and stakes and temples everywhere. 
they saw and they see themselves as the peculiar people, as the mountain cut, as the stone cut out. Not Jesus. It's not Jesus who's cut out of the stone, out of the mountain without hands. It's the Mormon church cut out of the mountain, rolling forth and consuming every kingdom on earth. That's the Mormon church. That's the way they teach it. Gordon B. Hinckley. So if Jesus has not come back as he said he would, then what they are doing in terms of approach and methodology is dead on. They're dead on. And they are living it right as the apostles were constantly encouraging the New Testament saints to prepare the coming. It's coming. It's coming quickly. It's coming. Be ready. You see it. And that's what Peter, James, John, Paul, and all these guys are telling the New Testament saints. It's coming, encouraging them to live sanctified lives of suffering. Uh, they had 12 apostles in Jesus' day after he ascended. Jesus did not leave his church without men on the earth guiding that church to be ready for Jesus' return. And Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. And while his apostles, men who were taught by him, were on the earth, the gates of hell could not prevail against his church. And that's why when 70 AD came, all who were part of his church were saved. Not one Christian died in the destruction, okay? Well, they have 12 apostles. And of course, they're frauds. But there is no way Jesus would ever leave his church for this many years without the guidance of 12 apostles continually. Or he would have been wrong about the gates of hell prevailing against his church. They would have had apostles that he called, and those apostles would have regenerated within their body of apostles to govern and guide over the church so that when Jesus comes in 2019 or eight or whatever it is, that the church is ready as the apostles have been preaching, right? So the gates of hell would never prevail against his church. If he hasn't come, then we would have to have New Testament apostles guiding and protecting it. The more I study the New Testament, and you challenge yourself on this, the more I can see the absolute need for absolute, genuine, actual apostles governing, guiding his material church for him to come and get. We can say that's true because from 30 to 70 AD, that's what Jesus had on earth. He had men on earth governing his church. And as we read through the epistles, they were the ones who held it together. And the church looked to their authority and their epistles and everything to keep them together. And obviously, so they were obviously needed to protect and guide his church. If he hasn't come, they're still needed. We still need them, right? If they weren't needed, Jesus wouldn't have, Jesus would have come, he would have atoned for sin, he would have ascended into heaven, and uh, no more mortal men would have to influence anything, and his church would have been fine, and the Holy Spirit would have protected it, and 70 AD comes and he takes all his believers, or it doesn't come and we're still waiting, and it's fine. But he did call 12 
and he taught them and he said, what you do on earth will be done in heaven and the gates of hell will not prevail against my church, which I'm establishing. Trained witnesses were necessary. We have biblical evidence for this. Trained witnesses of Christ called apostles were necessary to his church. Can't be denied. But what can be denied it was the need to replace themselves with new apostles as they died off. For instance, James was one of the earliest martyrs. He was killed very early on. No replacement. No record of them replacing him. After that, no record of anybody else being replaced. Why? Because those men weren't going to be needed all the way till today. They were gonna be needed to keep the church together until 70 AD when he would come back and the rest would be destroyed. So when they were dying off, there was plenty of apostles. James is dead, let's get together, let's elect another one. Or God, call another one. We'll call his name Philemon. And Philemon, he, he wrote 17 epistles for us. This apostle Philemon who was called after Paul was martyred. And no, we have nothing like that. When the last apostle died, who was John, what happened to the church? The gates of hell have done nothing but prevail against it. Nothing but prevail. Because the brick and mortar church has not been the thing he's wanted. That's why he says, I'll write my laws upon the hearts and minds of people, not through institutions. He, if it was an institution, he would have men overseeing it. If it was a brick and mortar that he was coming to get. But you see, what happened was, as soon as the last apostle died, he had come and taken his church up and we entered into a new age. We entered into the kingdom age. Way back in 70 AD, the kingdom was established upon this earth, but not here. It is ruled and reigned from the new Jerusalem, which is in heaven. It is spiritually led. It is Christ reigning over it. He lives in our hearts. The kingdom of God is within individuals not within buildings, and there's no need for apostles, obviously, Be, and, and, and the whole thing that has been fulfilled all the way through all the book of Hebrews telling us, listen, in these last days after this, I will shake everything one more time, and we've talked all about that. In God's eyes, there was no reason to replace apostles anymore. The apostles being put to death over the course of a 40-year period, ending with John, who received the revelation to the seven churches to say this is what the end revealing, the apocalypsis is gonna look like, the contents of which tell us, very first chapter, I'm coming quickly, I'm coming quickly, I'm coming quickly. Four times first chapter, three or four times last chapter, behold, I come quickly. And that is why that was set up that way. So no more need for apostles. We live in an entirely different age where the kingdom of God is in you. He has written his laws on your mind and on your heart, or he has not. And there is no more need for one neighbor to say to the other neighbor, no God, nor God, no God, because Jesus says, all will know him. We all have the spirit moving, calling, pushing on us, all will know him, and there's no need for the oversight of material religion. Not accepting this information, just ignoring it. Men, women, like Peter, who in his flesh said, you know, we should replace Judas here. 
let's cast lots, let's bring, let's replace Judas, and they got Matthias in there. Matthias disappeared forever from the annals of biblical history. Nothing from Matthias, everything from Paul. Men have attempted to recapture material religion over and over and over again. Look at the early Roman Catholic Church. Look at from Constantine, thousand years. Look at the Protestant Reformation. Look at what's resulted in that. Infighting ad nauseum. Everybody at each other's throats. Joseph Smith comes along and uh, he meets a guy named Sidney Rigdon. Sidney Rigdon, he was a disciple of a guy named Alexander Campbell. What did Alexander Campbell propose? Alexander Campbell said, you know, everything has been a mess in religious history. What needs to happen is we need to have a restoration. And all the things from the early church, talk about church creating churches. Alexander Campbell says, let's just create everything that's in the New Testament back out today and start afresh and get it right. So he has about 20 different ideas about what needs to be restored, including 12 apostles. And he and Sidney Rigdon, his cohort, they have a fight and they break off. And old Sidney, he meets a guy named Joseph Smith who's a front man, and they come together, and guess who pinned that Book of Mormon in all probability more than anybody else, Sidney. And he includes everything that needs to be restored in the brick and mortar church, everything. And he just borrows from Alexander Campbell, which is the Church of Christ today, Alexander Campbell. And so we have that again, we have a reformational attempt to restore the church back to earth. Yeah, everybody is trying to restore and start it, but the gates of hell just go downtown. I mean, if the church of God, uh, the real church of God restored has billion dollar shopping malls, we have a problem. So listen to the logic. You can see how eschatology, if it's properly understood, can tell the restorationist movements, you've lost your mind. This has nothing to do with what happened in the Bible. Jesus promised he would come back and he did. And we are living in the kingdom of the spirit now, which dwells in our hearts, which rained on from on high by God. And it has nothing to do with plain church the way it was done before. So in all this, we can see that the keystone to proving Mormonism as unnecessary is proper eschatology. But when the Christian churches step up and they say, we know he's coming back, the LDS, um, ter in terms of, uh, 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 in terms of bragging rights, they kick our butts. They kick our butts. Because if you're gonna look at the way it was established, they kick our butts. And so we keep saying he's coming back, he's coming back. Look what we are doing with ourselves in preparation for him coming back. Why, we have rock concert churches and we're doing this and we're doing that. And, and you know, it's hyper grace when you read the New Testament. It's not hyper grace, you guys. It's you better straighten up and be found a totally ready for him. That's how it was. If, we ha if he hasn't come, we better be totally ready for his return. And hence the LDS, again, knock us out in that capacity with their people. But it's built off a of faulty eschatology. So if the church understands this, and we can unitedly say we understand what the Bible is saying about this, we can go so far together in so many ways to say, all right, we get it, okay. So, but if we are to admit fulfillment, it's really hard because 
You know what? Fulfill, Christians cannot let go of their warm blankets. And the warm blankets to the faith are the world is going to end. Oh, it makes me so comfortable. And Jesus is coming to establish his kingdom here on earth. He loves me so much. He's going to call to me and I'm going to be raptured up. Uh, and so that's a warm blanket. I want to live by that. And I've got a hope for that. Or uh, uh, we have to war against evil. That's a warm blanket, you know, where the kingdom is established spiritually on high and he's reigning. We want to still be preparing the earth for his arrival and works righteousness stuff and the need for church and church playing and church funding and all that goes with it. These are the warm blankets. In the end, I ardently maintain that all Christians must be able to understand are the passages of kingdom. What are, was Daniel, what, what are all of them saying about this kingdom? Where is it? Okay, so again, verse 15. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. When it says the seventh angel sounded, of course, that means trumpet, and it says there were great voices in heaven. It seems to be there was exaltation, there was praise in heaven about we finally arrived at God's great plan to bring this kingdom into, uh, into the lives of all men by and through his Christ. The great and grand consummation had come, the period long anticipated since the Garden of Eden. God's desires that he would reign over earth from heaven had arrived because of the efficacious work of his son on the cross. It is now done. People, he came to God, his bride, that's done. He came and gave reward and he gave punishment as promised. That's done. And so we have to ask ourselves, and here's the $10,000, $100,000 question for us today. Has God, ask yourself this question rhetorically and in your mind. Has God, you're a Christian, has he, through his son, had victory over all things? Did you guys hear me say rhetorical in your mind, silently by the Spirit? <laughs> uh, there are, uh, now, I wanted it to be quiet because there may be people in who said no, you know, and, and, and if he hasn't, that says one thing to you about where you are in your faith, and if he has, it says an entirely different thing. If you believe, if you can say to somebody, he has had the victory, then you, what you are saying is it's all done. And you are a fulfillment Christian. You don't believe that there's still a war waging over the real estate of Christendom on the earth. You don't believe the accuser is still in power and has the ability to go before God and accuse you before him. You believe Jesus has had the victory. You believe that it's all been finished if you, do, if you think he's done it. So has he, or is he still trying to, cap, to release the captives? Is he still trying to have a victory? Christ, when he ascended, and, and even if he didn't return, Christ has not had the victory yet. That's what you have to say if you believe he's coming in the future. He has not had the victory. And if that's the case, what does your Christendom look like in your life? 
Because if he hasn't had the victory, it should play out to you in terms of you have to step up as a warrior and you have to fight against evil and you have to stand for your faith and you have to be personally ready so that you are not held accusable by God when he returns. All these factors of the New Testament come into play in your life if he hasn't had the victory. If you think he has, if he isn't victorious, you have to be really careful. You should be not attending campus if he has not been victorious. This is a Christ has had the victory church or gathering. This is a Jesus reigns. God has all power. He is completely sovereign over everything. Satan lost the title deed. The accuser was thrown away. The evil that is done comes from our own nature, like it did in the Garden of Eden. And if he hasn't come, you better get yourself right in preparation for that coming, as the apostles were teaching the people then. And so you want to play church, and you probably want to become like a really strict Southern Baptist, or perhaps, a, 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 I don't know about temple attending, but definitely a faithful Mormon who goes by everything they've listed for your holiness and purity because that is what is described by the apostles of the believers of that day to be that way until that age wrapped up, you see. So the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord. That's what we're looking for. Now people will say he's had the victory but his kingdom isn't here. That's, that's an oxymoron. Or people say, yes, he has had the victory, but the kingdom's not here. Or he hasn't had the victory, but the kingdom's here. All that stuff. Listen, if he's had the victory, the kingdom's here. If he hasn't had the victory, the kingdom's not here. So, most editions, it's singular. It's the kingdom. So it reads, the kingdom of this world are become the kingdom of our Lord. There are a few that are plural. Not that it matters. It's the same message, essentially. But... Uh, one kingdom of Satan, one kingdom of God, and that's what they seem to be talking about. John, uh, in, in, in uh, the Gospel of John, Jesus says the time now is, Satan's time is over. He says that when he was still alive. Of course, that could be not chronological, but he talks about it ending, it being over, and the prince of this world is about to be cast out of it. So, what is sort of interesting about this passage is that it doesn't say that the kingdom or kingdoms of the world are cast out, but they become or that they are the kingdoms of the Lord. You notice that? He doesn't say and they were thrown out of the universe, it's they become his kingdom. So we rail against Hollywood today. It's a favorite thing for Christians to do. Oh, look at that Hollywood. You know, and of course it's debased, it's, there's, it's godless. But maybe it's a kingdom that he, it's one of the kingdoms that he's just assumed and he's letting it run its course, but he uses it in his different ways. That's what this is saying is that it's not that the kingdoms are cast out, but the kingdoms become his. He's the one who is able to manipulate and, 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 and use them. So again, ask yourselves, is Jesus the king of kings? Is he the Lord of lords? Is God reigning or is Satan still in charge?
still have the, the ruling power at least over this earth? Does God reign through Jesus or not? Okay, and we'll wrap it up with this wild one. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Who is he, this Lord? Who is his Christ or his Messiah? God, why does John write it this way? The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Why and of his Christ? Why and of his Messiah? He is called his Christ because he is set apart from him, appointed by him to perform this work that's appropriate to that office of being human. This language discusses and describes God and Christ as absolutely distinct, absolutely distinct here, God and his Christ, as does the rest of scripture. The essential meaning of this passage seems to be that the kingdom of this world had become the kingdom of God under Christ. That is, that the kingdom is administered by the Son of God and therefore it is God's. Therefore it is God's kingdom. And it, the anointed one, his Christ, the question we are left with is who is that last line speaking about? The distinct God or the distinct Christ when it says, and he shall reign forever and ever. If the kingdom has been established, if Christ has had the victory, if God reigns supreme, who is reigning forever and ever in the distinctions of the Godhead? Is it God or is it his Christ? Now, in common Christian nomenclature, it is always assumed that Jesus is reigning over the earth. I used to subscribe to that coming from Calvary Chapel teachings, but no longer. I now subscribe that the distinct God, the one God, will and is forever reigning over everything because of the work of his only human son. In other words, his only human son who was the head of the human race will assume his place under God. The right hand of the father was temporary until he fulfilled his duties in the Holy of Holies. Of course, his son will stand as Lord and Savior of man forever, right? But God will reign. The distinct God will reign, and I'm not will, is reigning, I would suggest, and will continue to reign forever and ever and ever because of what Christ has done for man, all right? I justify this, of course, and, and we talked about this briefly this morning. We'll wrap it up with this. Five verses, six verses, and it's in 1 Corinthians, and it's a book we're gonna get to in the morning. It says, for since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Afterward, they that are Christ at his coming. Afterward, they that are Christ at his coming. Then cometh the end. The end of what? The world? No, it's not cosmos. It's the end of the administration. The end of the age. The end of the age of the Jew. Then cometh the end. When he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God. 
Right there, we're told Christ will deliver up the kingdom to God, distinct. Even the Father, more distinct. When he shall have put down all rule and all authority and all power, for he will reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet. And then there's a little side message here. When we say all things are put under him, it's manifest that he is accepted, uh, which did put all things under him. Meaning when he says all things, it doesn't include God. Ready? And the last one. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the son also himself be subject, be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God will be all in all. It's there in scripture. That's the kingdom. So to wrap it up, if the kingdom is here on earth spiritually in the hearts of men, and if it is being overseen by a kingdom in heaven, and it's perpetual and it's never ever ending, Satan the accuser has been cast out. Who is reigning? God is reigning over all things now. Why? Because his son did it for us. And now since he has come, it says at his coming, then cometh the end. If he has come and established his kingdom, then that's the situation we're in. And the Christian idea of Christ is reigning over his kingdom as the king is over. It's not that he's over. He's always Lord and Savior. But it was all for the glory of the Father. And it was all for him to reign supremely over this. That was the plan of the kingdom from the beginning. Until next week. Questions, comments now. Questions, comments, please wait for the microphone from Vanna. And say your name, please. Up to you. You're Vanna. Pat Sajak never tells her what to do. <laughs> Okie dokie, I'm Patrick. Um, in Joel chapter 2, I just wanted to read this because it makes a lot of sense in your view. After this, I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. This is Holman Christian Bible. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will have dreams and your young men will see visions. <clears throat> I will even pour out my spirit on the male and female slaves in those days. I will display wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awe-inspiring day of the Lord. This is modern English. Uh, then everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh God will be saved. For there will be, now, Matthew 24, and, but I'm reading from Joel 2. For there will be an escape for those on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, as the Lord promised, among the survivors, the Lord calls. That's right. So it's it's right there. It makes sense according to your view. That's right. That's, a, that's a, Joel being fulfilled. Mount Zion. The, the beginning uh, of that, Patrick, was being fulfilled when Peter, on the day of Pentecost, said, this is the fulfillment of Joel, when young men will dream dreams. And it goes through all the way till the destruction when Joel says, and there will be a remnant that will be saved out of Jerusalem. We have it right there. Very good. Next. 
our guinea pigs who've never been here and <laughs> stepped into meat? So it's probably a little theologically light question, but what would you say to somebody who's having some spiritual battle or spiritual warfare going on? You, what, how, do you, how do you describe that or where does it come from? Um, what I, the way I see it is, oh, what's your name? Tim. Tim. Yeah. Uh, the way I see it uh, is that before Satan fell, uh, he, was, he was a beautiful angel, apparently. Uh, but there was something that tempted him to fall. There is light and there is darkness. Because Satan, the accuser, the angel, is done away with, does not mean there's not darkness. There's always opposition to God in the dark. And I think that when we abide in the dark or when we're being tempted and tested, it's the darkness drawing us from the light. And that's what I think it is. But that person of the accuser was specific to the house of Israel, in my opinion. Yeah, that's how I would see it. Fair enough. Yeah, thanks for asking. Yeah. Anything else? All right. And by the way, while we're talking, I have learned that since that shooting at the church, a number of people are packing these days. Please, if an intruder comes this way, don't shoot at them. <laughs> I don't trust your aim. Just let me deal with the intruder. Can you imagine if someone came into this place? Like they would. And, and you guys all decide, <laughs> it's, I'm going to be the duck. <laughs> okay, ready? Yes. Okay. Uh, this is Travis. Um, I was just, when you were finishing up your last comment, I was reading in, in uh, John 12, uh, 48. Um, and I was curious to get your take on this. Um, these are the kind of things that kind of throw me off when I, when I read the Bible from like a past tense. But um, it says, he who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. Yeah. So is that our last day? Or is it as a whole? Yeah, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. And before you, before you answer that, I wanted to make a comment. Yeah. <laughs> um, in our ser my service this morning in church, um, the pastor was talking about exactly what you're just saying. It was an awesome message about how the serpent, he crushed the head of the serpent. Yeah. We are walking in that wake now. So we cannot do anything. That's right. He did it. Oh, we are walking in the destruction yeah. that he, he That's did. That's right. He, so, did, he crushed that serpent's yes. head. Yeah. And so when I did he do that, it? At the cross. Yeah. 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 So it's, it was interesting how that was a, it was a cool visual uh, that he used. I thought that was Awesome. Uh, I would say when it comes to Jesus speaking of the last day, he's talking to that generation. He's talking about the end of that age, and he's talking about the coming uh, axe is laid at the root of the tree and it's gonna come down. He's talking that. But when we read it, and I can't prove this, but when we read it, it's telling us as believers, we need to be pre pre prepared for our last day. Personal. Yeah, personal thing, that we will all have our last day. And uh, that's how I see it. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Anything else? All right, let's pray. And please take whatever food's left. I have this written on here. Lord, we, uh, we thank you and seek you and love you, need you. Pray that you'll send us forward uh, equipped, better equipped into the world for the rest of this week.
We'll springboard out of here and be Christians as you lead us, not by compulsion, but by spirit, and uh, live according to the fruit of that spirit, which is love and joy and peace and, and, and all the things that go along with it, t- uh, temperance and long-suffering, etc. We want to follow. Our flesh is weak, but we do desire you, and we come to learn, and revelation's heavy for us, but we just pray that you'll guide us, and we'll continue to learn what truths you want us to know. We pray for those who are struggling and suffering, which are many people, but uh, we have Gracie, a young child who's having cancer treatments. We pray that you'll help her little body to respond and that you'll bless her parents and all those who are close to Gracie, and you'll fill her with your uh, healing hand if it's your will. If it's not, Lord, we pray that you will help all understand uh, your ways, which are above ours. We pray for uh, Annette and Mike in healing from cancer. We pray for Diana, who's struggling with, of course, a body that is broken down, but also depression, in part from uh, pain uh, pills she has to take. And uh, we just pray for her and her well-being. We pray for Paula and her healing of her back. Uh, We pray for... uh, um, What's their names? I can't remember. Hold on. All the parishes, we pray for uh, uh, Lisa and, uh, and Parish and Lisa's diagnosis of uh, just terrible, horrible, full-body cancer, that you'll be with that, that family. Again, if it's in your will, she'll be healed, and that, that will be something that they can look to you as happening. And if not, that her being taken will be laid at your feet as happening according to what you want and that we will live this life according to you, and we will exit this life according to you. Um, We pray for Ron and his wife. Ron passed away last Sunday and took his last breath with uh, his wife over him. I just talked to her on the phone, and we just pray that you'll bless uh, them and help uh, that family. And anybody else whose names aren't on here, just help us all. Uh, We are commanded, we're told to pray, and we want to communicate with you, and we want to do it openly and honestly. So be with us now. Protect us from any potential dangers or harms, and uh, help us to be better Christians as we leave today. In Jesus' name, amen. For I am Greek.